Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I have to tell you, people, I'm very excited because uh, football season, football season starting, uh, well, for me, Monday night, you know, I'm a big Eagles fan. And I look at my guest website, and I found out she's a big Steelers fan. Now, what's amazing is, though, which you are, right? I am a Steelers fan. But now, now, what's amazing is people always come up to me, and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, out here. And they go, because I'm always in Burbank, and I have my Eagles hat when I go see the games. And they're like, you must hate the Steelers. And I go, well, why would I hate the Steelers? I mean, ex- except that their quarterback is an allegedly a rapist. <laughs> but besides that, I always sit there. I go, do you not know geography? Philadelphia to Pittsburgh is about four and a half hours. Okay. Teams like the Jets, the Giants, the Redskins, the Ravens are all closer. Even the Patriots. And I always laugh. And Pittsburgh's in the NFC, AFC, and, I, and the Eagles in the NFC. And I always laugh when people sit there. They automatically assume, like, I hate Pittsburgh. And I'm like, my uncle used to watch the Steelers. And he would drink Iron City beer. And back then, they had the Iron City beer with Steelers on them. This is Joe Green and Terry Bradshaw. And I still remember watching the Immaculate Reception in the kitchen. And I wanted the Raiders to win. And it ruined it. We were at my grandfather's house. And we couldn't watch TV in the sitting room. So me and my uncle, my uncle would get hammered watching the games. And I always laugh because I saw that my guest was a Steelers fan. And I've never come to the conclusion why people think that Eagles fans hate Steelers fans. Have you heard that? I have heard that. And you know what? It's it, it, it doesn't matter. The proximity doesn't matter. But in that particular case, there are a lot of very polarized uh, Eagles fans that hate Steelers fans. But it's not as it's not as bad as Steelers Ravens. That's yeah. the big that's the big rivalry. But I'm also due to my geographical uh upbringing i i have the strange uh, moniker of being a fan of three teams in the same conference so i grew up being a steelers fan because we're, we're, back okay. in the my guess is Deirdre loved you oh, i didn't hi. even introduce you okay <laughs> i, I, I want to hear this okay, okay so okay good so i grew up uh in pittsburgh right you know during steel shortly after the steel curtain days and the immaculate reception and all of that i mean every time i go to the pittsburgh airport and there's the statue of franco harris Right at the right before baggage claim, I'm you know I'm taken back down memory lane. But then I moved to Indiana, and spent you know the rest of my formative years there. And you have to remember that was before Directv and getting any game that you wanted in your hometown, you could watch whatever game they showed you. That's it. So then I moved to Indiana and I became a Colts fan, even though the Colts were not the Colts then; they were still the Browns. But that's another story. I mean the the uh yeah, the the St. Louis Cardinals the, no. the the Ra- the, Ra- the 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 Ravens were the, the Browns the Ravens were the Browns and the, they snuck which team snuck the the Colts snuck out of Baltimore or something and, yes. in the middle of the night or right. something it's a great documentary right. they have about right that. so then I became a Colts fan um and then I moved to New York to go to graduate school and I lived there still we don't have you know full football passes for our televisions. So then I become a Jets fan. At least you're not a Giants so, fan. Right? So, okay. So, but then I'm, but due to my, my love of the Colts, I also, you know, I have a proclivity to love Eli. So I have this, you know, I have sort of a multi-dimensional uh, fandom that I, I, I do have particular allegiances that are stronger than the others, but sometimes I, I it gets me messed up when, like when they're playing each other. Well, it must be great yeah. now, as you said, because of the package, because what I always laugh is it's like, me and my girlfriend, she's a big Eagles fan too. We watch the game at home if it's on. Like the Eagles, like well, Monday Night Football, we'll watch it at home. I'd rather sit at home, relax. We have a bigger Absolutely. TV. But then what's funny is, you know, growing up back east, and even when I would go back to see her, we would watch it at her her place or her brother's place. But it's just weird because back there, if you went to any bar, it would be all filled up with Eagles things. Out here, what amazes me is you go to a bar, and there's 15 different TVs, 15 different games, and there's too much stimulus going on for me because you can't concentrate. I go to a place in Burbank called Black Angus. For some reason, nobody goes there. It's great. <laughs> it's they have all the TVs. There's like a fat guy named Chili and a guy named Bronco who play fantasy and like one weird, and there's a Steeler fan who's, he's not, the Brown fan was weird. This guy Brown fan used to come with long blonde hair. And, and a dog hit, painted on no, his face. No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know he had a keychain that had like an eight ball on it. So I'm thinking he's doing an old reference to the cocaine days because he looked like an old rocker. But we go there and it's great because no one goes. But also if you go out, you really can't enjoy the game because like if you were a Steelers fan. For some reason, I have nothing against Steelers fans, but there's a lot of people who don't like the Steelers. Probably because they've won so many Super Bowls. That's right. So you get the idiot, oh, Steelers suck. It's like, I'm just here to watch the game. I That's just, right. I'm just here. So. Well, it's also the, due to the fact that Los Angeles is a city of not a lot of natives, although there are a lot of people who grew up here. But but in terms of sports, you know, y- there are so many people from all over the country that slide here. 
right. that 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 the games do have to be sort of representative geographically of that. So, have you been to that bar in Santa Monica, the Patriots Bar? What's it called? Oh, Sunny McLean's. Oh my God! Okay. I went in that place, and I I hate, um, the, Patriots. I hate the Patriots. Okay, so we good. can all See, agree we, on that. We, we, yeah. I hate. I was although you know. Although I have respect for Mr. Brady because he's a great quarterback, he's great, but he, um, you know, I won't even discuss what's going on now right. and what happened during he's my poor crook. Colts game. But that bar, I went in there and I was afraid for my life because they were so rabid. So I just hid in the back and played air hockey. Well, you know what's funny? Quarters. It closed, but right across the street, not this, but there's right across the street used to be a bar called the Shack, and it was an Eagles bar. And what <gasps> happened was on the Super Bowl bum, bum, when bum. they played, because Sonny McLean's only serves beer and wine, all the Patriots fans were running across the street to the shack when the For Eagles shots. played to do shots. And the <laughs> Eagles fans were like, get out of our bar. You know, it's a thing. So, so nice. So you like all the teams. Now, you were born in Indiana? Or... I was born in Texas. Right. Te- okay, but don't tell anybody. Yeah, you're, so, yeah exactly. Yeah. That's Texas and Florida. Yeah. The two My father was in the Air Force, and so I was born on the base uh, there in Abilene, Texas, and lived there till I was like uh, two. And then we moved to Connecticut, lived there for two years, and then we moved to Pittsburgh. And I was there until uh, midway through third grade, I think, and then off to Indiana, where we sort of got stranded. <laughs> now, when you were in Indiana, I heard at a very young age, your mom used to take you to theater. Yes, my mom was, uh, it, it was and still is, you know, a, uh, a big theater fan and, and was always doing, uh, you know, wanted to be an actor in, in her own life and, you know... Uh, got pregnant and married instead and um she used to be very involved in in the community theater there and um you must have you probably visited my little website which oh, it's great, it's great. Go, to, go to dear to lovejoy.com and, and it's d-e-i-d-e-i-r not d-e-i-d There's right it's d-e-i-r-d-r-e that's uh that's uh it's a complicated thing but for you people. like to be called Dee. that's well because because nobody can spell my name or Dang pronounce it. <laughs> I, I, I had someone, this is no lie, I, this is so crazy. My name's Cooper. It's easy enough, C-O-O-P-E-R. I went somewhere, and someone's like, uh, and they're looking through for my ticket. Uh, and I'm like, what? Uh, how, how do you spell that? I go, it's not a K. They wrote, wrote K-U-P-E-R. And I just said, you're an Oi, idiot. It must okay. be California school system. So, All right. So your love, uh, your website. Yeah, so so my mom started. So my mom started going to um, uh, the community theater when we moved to Elkhart, Indiana, which is Notre Dame adjacent. Okay. By by way of uh, just sort of familiarity, and she, well, you know, I was just tagging along with my mom, and there was a play she was doing, and there was a part for a kid, and you know, I of course got it because I was there. It's kind of how you get parts in community theater. You, right. sh- you show up. <laughs> oh, you're, you're here? <laughs> here, you do no, this. Wait, you're, you're nine. Okay, come on. Can you come next weekend? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I started doing that and it became my home away from home. And, um, you know, I, I, it's interesting. You know, I, I have a lot, being in this business, you, you have a lot of friends who, you know, despite their enormous talent, um, begin to need to perhaps pursue other avenues to support themselves and, 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 and perhaps avenues that will actually be commensurate in terms of return to effort. So, uh, you know, there are a lot of, lot, I always am fascinated when I talk to people that are like, that say to me, when, when did you decide you wanted to be an actor? Because I, I realize it's a, it's, it's a gift because I've, I have never wanted to do anything else. I have never done anything else. I mean, of course, I've done strange jobs to support right. myself through the years until but your I, career focus has always been. Oh, never you, wanted to do anything else. So, I, you know, I, I have great respect for people who actually have to go through some sort of analytical process to decide, you know, what's going to benefit them emotionally, financially, and and actually make a choice, like you know, opening a page in a book and go, I'm going to do, you know, I'm going to sell right. insurance or whatever it is. Um, so, and, and Elkhart Civic Theater sort of is, it's their fault. And I went, uh, right through high school doing plays and went off to college in, in Southern Indiana and Evansville, right? Evansville, University of Evansville recently voted one of the top 10 small colleges in the country for uh, a theater degree. Isn't that great? I yeah, mean, when you think about it, it cause you know, a lot of times people think when a theater, they think, you know, well, I mean, and I, which I never knew Carnegie Mellon was such a big 
school. I always thought it was an yeah. engineering oh, school. Oh, no, that's, that's a great huge school. Huge acting school, yeah. My friend Cherry Jones went to uh, Carnegie Mellon. So, Lots yeah. of great theater people. So, so you went to, you went as a theater major. Right. I went as a theater ma- I actually went as a double major because I was like, you know, I grew up kind of on the poorer side, uh, you could say. That, that, that would be one way of putting it. And... I didn't want all I ever heard when it, when people said, what do you want to do? I'd say, I'm going to be an actor. They would be like, oh, well, you know, you're, you're going to starve. Right. And, you know, you hear that so often as a child. And and you really think that if you choose to do this, you are going to be starving and living in a refrigerator box yeah. or, your whole or, life. Or they say uh, you need something to fall back on. Yeah. Got to yeah. yeah. have a good plan B. Got to have a good plan B. You can go through that acting thing, but you need something to fall back right. on. Right. So when I went to college, I thought, oh, well, I'm going to be, I'll be a double major. I'll major in communications. And I started working at the radio uh, station at, at U of E. And then in my freshman year, I got hired from that radio gig at the local uh, AM radio station and used to do, you know, the, the graveyard shifts on the weekend and, and Sunday morning, Casey Kasem playing American Top 40 and reading t- you know, tear sheets of the news. And then I got hired from that station to, to uh, do the morning show with their sister station in Henderson, Kentucky, which was across the bridge. That was a big commute. Um, the They had an AOR station, album oriented rock station, and KC 103, and so I did the morning show with Dave and Dee Dee. I was the news and the color person or whatever, and and then as, the, as soon as that happened, I thought, well, I'm already working in the radio business, and that's what I would want the degree for, and so I'm just going to be a theater major now. Okay. <laughs> so I, I did that and went right to grad school uh, for theater in at NYU, New York University, right from Evansville, and, you know, got an... My first job that next summer was Shakespeare in the Park, you know. So, so, so you, you knew you wanted to go to New York. I mean, you sat there and did you sit there you know and decide? What? I did know I wanted to go to New York because that was I wanted to do theater and that was the place everybody said to go. It wasn't Chicago wasn't sort of the thriving. Uh, it was up and coming. It wasn't quite what it was, what it is now then. Uh, so that wasn't as much of a uh, you know, today. Kids in the Midwest have kind of, you know, they have a lot more choices about where to go. But um I I wasn't going to go to graduate school because I was ready to just tackle the world. And my um <clears throat> excuse me acting teacher there, a guy named John David Lutz, who uh, just recently stepped down as chair uh, from the University of Evansville, um, and was replaced by a classmate of mine as the chair, a guy named Eric Rentschler, who was a is a brilliant set designer, design sets for uh, John Lee Beatty, who's a very well known uh, Broadway uh, theatrical stage designer. John says says to me, you you really have to you, you have to at least go and do this graduate audition circuit. And I was, you know, again, grew up with not a lot of money. I'm like, oh, who's going to pay for that? Right, exactly. Um, I'm going to be so much in debt from this little shindig for the last four years. New York City. Oh yeah, that that's that's right on the list of uh, exactly. what I can afford. <clears throat> but at his encouragement, I I did the audition. I got into NYU, and I wound up getting a full ride and a assistantship, which you know, back you know, just to sort of give you an idea of, of what the assistantship uh, compensation was. I, every two weeks, I, I worked the front desk and did what they told me, sort of. And um, I, every two weeks, would get a check for $110. That's crazy. I remember when right. I went to college and I went, my, wearing my shirt, this is Richard Stockton. Now my college is Richard Stockton University. And when I went to college, it was Stockton State. And I worked in a library and like two days a week. And the same thing, like your your money was like, you get your check and you be like, I should have gone across and got a job at the mall because right. it'd be better. But you're like, oh, you're on campus. That's right. But I mean, like, but all the all the way through undergraduate school, I I did, you know, morning radio shows. So I'd get up at three thirty to be at work at, you know, be on the road at four thirty to be at work at at four thirty, or I would, uh, when I when I no longer did that, I opened up a the Evansville Racket Club at. 4:30 in the morning. Right, right, right. And then I would cocktail waitress at night. So I I don't recall. I think there were drugs involved, but I did not sleep. It's, well, that's for, a, that's like in college. Through, through college. It was like, hey, let's, let's take, there was no time. Yeah, let's take 18 nodos and wash it down with Coke. <laughs> not Coke, but Coca-Cola. And you're like, okay. And then you'd be taking your you take your your finals and you'd be like shaking. You're like, okay. And you want to go? I want to go home and sleep. But you right. had to go out because the finals were over, so you had to go drink. And That's then, right, to bring you down for the exactly, no-dos. Exactly. <laughs> so, so you're in New York, and then you're going to school. Now, when you graduate, right. what do you do? Now, you were, did Shakespeare in your park wait the first year you were in school? That was, no, that was my first job, my so first professional job. Right. NYU, and then graduated at NYU. Graduated at NYU, and 
actually, I turned down Shakespeare in the Park right out of, of NYU grad school to take a non-equity job in Woodstock, Illinois, because it paid $300 a week. Oh, well, there you go. And I was like, <laughs> why do I want to do this stupid park thing when I could be making real money? And uh, that turned out to be you know, the first of many brilliant career decisions. But I, um, while I was in Woodstock, Illinois, I actually got called back to audition for the next show in the park. And, um, the, you know, the founder of the public theater, Joseph Papp, was directing and uh, it was still alive at that time. And he hired me in the room for my first job, which which also, you know, never happened again until last year, actually it happened again last year. Um, but I had this uh, sort of odd beginning to my professional career, which was, you know, people stopping me in the middle of audition and, audition and saying, you know, we will engage you. Um, and me calling my agent, which is my first appointment with him and saying, I got, I got the job. Right. And him being like, <laughs> what? So I, I, it took me a while to realize that those were not normal things, but uh, you know, that was my, my start in New York. And that was a non-equity job in the park. I understudied Angela Bassett. Oh, there you go. <laughs> um, who, you know, I, I was reunited with, um, last year or a couple of years ago when I was doing Lucky Guy on Broadway because her husband, Courtney Vance, I was doing the show. And Courtney and I also go back many decades because my first Broadway show was a show called uh, Six Degrees of Separation at Lincoln Center. And Courtney was playing the, the lead in the show then. So Now, now when you after the, after the Shakespeare in the Park, so you were getting your hold on the, the theater scene in New York somewhat. I guess, yeah, sure. Getting my footing, finding out what it was about. Those... Yeah. So, so where do you go then? I mean, you said you ended up going to Broadway, but what's what's the time in between? You're doing off-Broadway? You know, I mean, what what as you to get to actually being in Six Degrees of Separation, which right. was a Broadway play, right. what did steps that you have to take? Because there's, there's got to be a lot because there's so many people coming out of school it, and there and the difference is, as I always say, in L.A., in L.A. you can be, you know, uh, you can be okay, you know, to get a part, but to be on stage and being, you have to be good. Well, you it, have to, you have to be, one would hope you have to be trained in, in, in that the market, uh, the marketplace of actors, the actor base in New York City is, I think, generally uh, one that comes from training, advanced training, um, conservatory programs at NYU and Yale or, you know, SUNY, all those, all those training programs. And, and Los Angeles, uh, you know, is such a youth-focused town that there are a lot of kids that come right out of college right out of high school even, that are just, you know, ready to work and, and do get work on the basis of their age. Right. So, but for me, the, I mean, and it, it's so interesting because, you know, suddenly, um, I won't say I'm old, but I will say suddenly I'm very experienced. And it's a different time now. I mean, because to describe what the process of, of navigating the transition between graduate school and becoming a professional actor and those first several years Sounds like, you know, an old ye old timey story now because you don't have to, you know, walk uh, hand with a, 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 you know, an armful of hard copy pictures and resumes that weigh 50 pounds all over New York City, hand knocking on doors and hand delivering them to the casting assistants because you're on a list that's been posted that you've copied down and and then you sit at home, do your mailings. You know, it was, you know, I had to crawl through oh, no, see, miles of glass. You I, know, back in the day, we had, even when I first came to L.A., you, you would get an audition. You would have to drive from your house. Mine, of course, was always, you know, I, I'd be in the valley or wherever I was. Drive to Century City at, you know, 11 o'clock to find some little box outside oh, of the agency door. Pick up your sides. Drive. You know, oh, none I, of that is even in the picture I, now. I always talk about because I did stand-up comedy on the road from 88 to 95. Right. And the thing was, you had to sit there and send a press kit out. So you had you couldn't just sit there and put something online. Like, hey, you couldn't send a link, so you would have right. to sit there. First, you have to tape your set. You have to have a good set that you could tape. Then you have to buy the video. Then you have to transfer it onto that. And I remember sitting there, you'd sit there with your thing connected because you didn't have the money to pay for the professional transfer. No one did it back then. So you'd have your patch cords going with your, your huge VCR. machines yeah. and, and take up half your apartment. And then you get the tape and then you have your tape set and then you sit there and you get your picture and then you send all the stuff out. And, and yeah, and it was, it was so much like you couldn't do that. You, and you had to find out through someone, you know, you couldn't go online to find out where a comedy club was. You'd say, oh, where, where is this club? So you'd say, oh, the booker's here. You send it to here. 
and it was it was a big pain in the ass. And so, it, so it's not like we're it makes us sound like we're old, but it's not. It's just it's a it's a different and, world. Yeah, it's and just, the te- and the 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 speed of the technological advancement oh, crazy. It has been exponentially just sort of mind boggling. So you know today. Today the kids get the picture and they have it that afternoon. Oh yeah. And they, and it's all retouched. That's not a one month process. And back to that. And then, you, you don't have the you know the nine hours with the little eyepiece. Do you remember lithographs? Oh my God, yeah. You go into of the course. back. Those were cheaper here. Yeah, you go into Ugh. the back of a magazine, my buddy. So if you go back to the guitar player magazine, I didn't play guitar. So you go into the store and you look. Oh wait. And you write the they address down. They almost look as good. Yeah, and they and they would send them. And it was the difference between it was like you get like it was like a hundred dollars less. Yeah, it was like two hundred for fifty dollars instead of like ten for fifty. And it was the big and do thing. you know I don't even remember the last time I ordered a hard copy of my headshot. Oh, I know because everything's digital now. I know it's some, I, I went I go out for auditions every once in a while and but, someone said send a headshot and they said do you have a headshot and I said. Well, it's through my agent sent you this stuff. I said, I'm not going to bring it. I'm not going to go get a headshot printed. I'm not going to do that. It's like you saw me through the computer. That's all you need to know. <laughs> well, but I want to get back to your question because it's a good one because the 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 transition time between um, getting out of any training program and, and sort of segueing into being a working professional is sort of this, you know, at that time it was very mysterious sort of, um, purgatory because they trained you how to act in school but they didn't train you how to audition and right. they didn't train you how to how to handle yourself when you walk in a room they didn't train you how to handle uh, the you know take the temperature of, of a room that could be one person or 15 people or you know nine people in a crappy mood and not take any of that personally you know they didn't teach you that initially <clears throat> You're not going to come out to, you know, to book some job and, and be able to support yourself. You have to find a way to, to live and manage your life and not go crazy. And then also be prepared to do your work when you show up. And the learning process of learning how to be a good auditioner. And, and, and that in and of itself took years. And, um, and, and then, you know, for me, I had personal issues. I had to get my life together. I had to you know, stop partying all the time and, and, and get my head on straight. So that was a a big thing for me. But, um, once I sort of learned how to suit up and show up and just take care of my side of the street, you know, show up and do good work and forget about the results, then things started happening. But boy, that took years, took years, you know? So you, you get on Broadway eventually. And that must be a great feeling for any, I mean, just to sit there, it's Broadway. I, I had a friend of mine uh, who was in Phantom of the Opera. He said, uh, and he ended up playing the opera at the end, and he said it was just an amazing feeling when you go to this, you know, you see people lined up when you're going to the theater there to see you. Mm-hmm. What is that like? Because you bust your ass, you're sitting there, and you're doing, as you said, you go through a lot, and the training, and now you get, I mean, it must have been as an, as an actor, or just as a person, it must be such a fulfilling feeling just to sit there and be like, okay, I'm sitting here. I'm on Broadway. Yeah, it's a mind. It's a. It's a. I was gonna say it's a mind beep. Right. <laughs> um, you know, well, I've done four Broadway shows, and only two of them were good, and they've been many years apart. And Six Degrees was the first one. I was 29 when I I did that show, so I'd been out of grad school for several years already, and um, I, you know, it was surreal. And for that particular show, I'd been hired as an understudy, and I went on for two performances and then got hired to, to be in the show. Um, but Six Degrees was also at Lincoln Center Theater, <laughs> technically Broadway, but it's at Lincoln Center. So I remember my first Broadway Broadway show that was actually sort of in the theater district. But but there were there were two shows that I did at the theater in the theater district. One was at the Helen Hayes, one was at the Court Theater. <clears throat> they shall remain nameless because they were kind of unmentionable. They, they, they both ran for a couple of months, but faded quickly away. They're on your website. Well, I'm sure they are. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to go there to find out where they are. Um, but Lucky Guy was sort of, I, I, I have to say, unequivocally, my favorite experience is thus far in my career, other than a couple of roles I've played regionally that have been equally as fulfilling in other ways. But walking, first of all, you have, you know, George Wolfe directing, who is, you know, one of the great theatrical minds of our of our time. <clears throat> then you have Nora Ephron, 
who unfortunately Brilliant. passed away right Brilliant. before. Brilliant, right. But, you know, every who doesn't love her and her work? Then you have Tom Hanks. And, and interestingly enough, I got, the, I booked that Broadway show from an audition I taped on my iPad from a room in the Candlewood Suites in Indianapolis, Indiana, while I was doing a play at the IRT there, the Indiana Repertory Theater. And in, and and Holland Taylor, who's a, a very dear friend of mine, said to me, I said, oh, I'm supposed to do this audition. Uh, they want me to send in a tape. But, you know, I'm really sure that I'm going to get, there's two women's roles in this, you know, massive cast of 14. George Wolf's directing. Tom Hanks is starring. Nora Ephron wrote it. I'm, I'm sure they're going to cast me from my tape from the Candlewood Suites. From an iPad. Exactly. <laughs> that's on top of the couch, that's on top of the coffee table, with the lamp, like, you know, pointed on, on a stack of books. <laughs> Hurry, it's 6 o'clock, we're losing light. You know, I mean, the jerry-rigging of that yeah. taping situation was not to be believed. But at any rate, Holland said to me, you send in that tape. They're not asking everybody to send in that tape. And I was like, well, okay. She, you know, she half terrified me and half just, was like, just shut up. That's exactly what I said. Just suit up and show up. Just do the work and send. So anyway, I did. <laughs> and then I heard nothing. And then I, the, yeah, I heard nothing. And I called my agent here because uh, I was doing a play at the Indiana Repertory Theater at the time. A great play called The House of Jack Belt by a, um, a playwright named James Still, who lives here in Los Angeles, who's, you know, a prolific, brilliant playwright. And it was, it, I was thrilled to be there. But I was a little disappointed to hear anything about this audition. Um, and weeks went by, and then I get a call from my agent. I shouldn't tell the story. He'll never, he'll never listen to this. But, but to me, great news! I'm in Indianapolis. I'm like, what? He goes, the first choice passed. <laughs> and I was like, what are you talking about? First choice for what? He says, lucky guy, the first choice passed. I said, why is that even good news for me? He goes, you're the second choice. What so I was like half thrilled because I, you know, you know, and then it was like two days of we, you're going to get the offer, but they need to know you're going to take it before you do it. Cause there's still like, there's 49 people that have to produce, pr- approve you for these jobs. I mean, there really were, I mean, that flagpole went to freaking you know, Venus. It was ridiculous. And, um, so anyway, I wound up getting the job, and and it wound up being uh, unsurpassably the greatest experience of my life from start to finish. In terms of the work, in terms of the company, it was a love fest. We all loved each other. A company of fourteen actors, and you know, four stage managers, and the director, and the assistant. I mean. To have that many people involved in a project and to have everyone not just get along, right. but like hang out every single night and everyone, you know, r- kind of r- walking, running a little too quickly to get to work. And everyone, when that show closed on closing night, we had a limited run. We could have run forever. There was never an empty seat in the house. And in fact, when there was, um, it was there was a lot of direct address in the play. We all talked to the audience. And uh, there, Tom would come out for his entrance, and occasionally there would be the, you know, the $500, pri- the circle seats or whatever that they really charge a fortune for that people buy and then apparently don't show up for. Sometimes there were a few empty seats in the front row, and he would do, like, five minutes of pointing at the empty seats, and then you'd point to the balcony and, like, wave people down, like, why are there empty right, seats right. in this house? But, you know, to do a, a Broadway play with a, a movie star of Tom's caliber meant that we virtually never had an empty seat. And right. that's a, an experience as an actor you've never had. Yeah, so, yeah, you know it's going to be sold out. I mean, it's like anything. It's like Yeah, you... but to look out at that seat, because, like I said, direct address, so we, so we spent a lot of the play just looking at the audience, you know, to see 1,300 people, you know, just st- every single night, not an empty seat was was really thrilling and so closing night of that show which could have run forever but um or at least least for another year 
Um, but, you know, I guess he had some movies to make or something. Yeah, that's uh, they, yeah. they didn't want to replace him. Um, they, um, we came off stage after the curtain call, and I have never experienced this in my life. Everybody exited stage right, and George was there, and stage management was there. Um, I think they had some champagne or something. I, I don't even, I don't even remember. We all stood there. And nobody left the stage. Well, they did have champagne because they passed it out. We all just sort of stood there with our little plastic champagne cups. And and George made a toast, and we toasted and we drank and and stood there still. And then finally, like literally, the stage door guy had to come and say, I'm sorry, we can't hold the people any longer. We had all literally been standing off stage in costume, reluctant to leave the experience um, for 15 minutes, and we've had we have lucky guy reunions in the city at least. I mean, anytime Tom comes to town or anytime somebody one of our cast is doing a show, we'll all get together and go. We have an email chain to this day that you know so and so is doing this. It's this one's birthday. I've never experienced that, and I it was it was charmed. And I think part of that has to do with Nora, and and part of that has to do with just the magic of whatever that 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 play was for for everybody involved. Well, it seems you love stage. Now, now when you were in New York, what made you come down to LA? Did you say you wanted to come? I mean, what made you transition out here cuz someone who loves stage, I mean, I guess all there's not a, you know, huge, I mean, you can make more money doing TV and movies and Absolutely. But is that why you came out here because it must be hard cuz you really were involved in the stage scene. Absolutely. Well, you know, there comes a point where you as much as you love anything, you have to you have to make a living. And, you know, of course, I, I, I had been well-trained that I would starve and live in a cardboard box. So I um I had come up for L.A. for a pilot season one time in the 90s, I think. And, you know, I think I had two auditions the whole time I was here. Um, literally. It was that sort of right. tumbleweeds. And then after I booked The Wire uh, and The Wire uh, aired, the first season I thought well maybe I'll have better luck so I came out for um for some of our time in between the wire I wasn't pilot season I wasn't available anyway because I was doing the show but um I just uh, started booking lots of work and I booked so much work that I every time I wasn't shooting the wire I would come back out to LA and and do TV and I wound up being here uh for about eight years I actually bought a house out here which I, I wish I hadn't that's a whole other story but um, I, you know, I just I kept getting lots and lots of work, um, and then in uh, 2009 I had this really strange health crisis, which I've written a play about, by the way. Um, uh, and when I came out of that, I I had a I started waking up in hospitals all over the valley. I had a seizure disorder, and nobody knew what it was. Um, and when I finally regained my ability to walk and talk, which I didn't have by the end of 2009, um, I sort of came out of that. And, you know, when you have um, uh, lots of people have had health issues, near-death experiences, whatever. When you come out of an experience like that, it really sort of clarifies your perspective. And I knew that I had to find a way to reincorporate what was, what fed my soul. It's so cliche. It, it, it really is. It sound, uh, cliches are true for a reason. Um, I love doing television. I love making money just as much as the next person. I love Los Angeles. I love my Vespa 250, which I ride constantly here, not because of this leg. But, but I have to feed my soul and continue to stretch myself in my craft. And the only way I can do that is to do theater. And I, I, I didn't... Um, I just didn't think L.A. was the place for that. So I made a decision to move back to New York, and I made a decision to start doing theater again while I was writing this play about my experience with my health issue. And, and, and almost immediately, as soon as I had made that decision, of course, opportunities started presenting themselves, and I wound up moving back to New York for a lucky guy. Okay. Um, but I had already decided I was going to move back anyway. Right. And I still have my apartment there because I, I, I own my apartment there and, and uh, have kept it. So it worked out really well. And, you know, I, I, it's another reinforcement of, of 
it's a it's a tightrope that we walk as as actors and artists and writers and whatever it is that we do creatively it's a tightrope that that um line between financial solvency and spiritual wealth you know we really have to find a balance and it's different for everybody i mean wouldn't it be nice if there was some if 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 any any of those self-help books we all have stacked on our shelves had the one answer you know you don't you have to find what it is that for you that feeds you in all important ways the material and spiritual so for some of you who loves theater now you know for loving theater being a theater you know it must be great though because you did the wire which is a very iconic show it's i mean it's one it's always rated one of the best shows it's one of those things that i watched even though at hbo i watched later it's one of the binge watching things right, right, which right. Uh, uh a guy i went to my college i i'm friends with him on facebook he's much younger he's follows me on this one college group because i interview a lot of actors he wants to act right his name is dan stockman dan. he just wanted to tell me that, that your character is his favorite character of oh, all time dan stockman is it dan stockman Stop. yes, dan Stock. if i said if i said it wrong well, I gotta check that now. I better be. Good. <laughs> no, I'm just, but, uh, so Let now, me just say thanks, Dan. Now, so when when did you sit there and when you auditioned for that show, did you think? I mean, did you have any idea? Because it's like I talked to so many people who they audition for a show and they think there's no. I had someone who came on and they were doing a comedy with Cloris Leachman and Harvey Corman. That should not miss. I mean, that's like anything. Right. And after eight episodes, gone. Right. So you never know. Did you know, I mean, when you when you auditioned for that, did you have any, that is Dan Stockman. I don't feel bad now. Oh, good. Uh, <laughs> I felt bad if it was. Now, did you know it'd be such a. No. I, I mean, just, but, and just the writing. I mean, because this came from, I mean, Simon is an ex. An ex sure. And it's set in Baltimore. And you're like, you know, I mean. Well, he's a, he's a, he's a, he, he was a, a, a police reporter for okay. the Baltimore Sun. He. Yeah, no. And I I think if anybody told you that they knew it was going to be what it's turned into, they would be lying. But, you know, maybe somebody is more uh, no, precious than me. I, I, I knew it was that was another one. What I'm learning about myself in this interview is that I might have a self-esteem issue. I, I you know, I got that call. There are two women on this new HBO series. Um, you're going to go in for this. For this role and i'm like right i'm sure there's i'm gonna be the one of the two women you know because i'm not that the pretty girl i'm not the you know i'm 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 just me and i don't know what that is and neither did anyone else at that point but i i walked into that audition and there were so many like heavy hitters like famous people tony award winners emmy award winners all of my peers younger older and it was like an all back what we call everybody was in for that show so I was so completely not nervous because I knew there was no way I was going to get okay. it, right? So I'm like chatting with people. Oh, da, 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 time to come. Okay, bye, see ya. You know, I went in, I did my reading. Of course, you know, it was one of the times I was trying to quit smoking. So I had a, a patch on me when they went to put the mic on. I was like, oh, God, there's my patch. Great. Now I'm never going to get this job, whatever. And I did the audition. It was, you know, I had fun. It was, and, and. Uh, David was there, David Simon, Bob Colesbury, who was the, uh, one of our producers that passed away after season uh, three. And I um, I got a call a couple weeks later. Um, and this is all, I can't remember if 9-11, 9/11 if it happens after, this is all shortly after 9-11. So, you know, everything kind of has a different perspective after 9-11 anyway. It's like everything is not a big deal, you know? Uh, we we know what's important, and that's that we're all walking around alive. Um, I got a call like three weeks later, and it was my agent saying, you know, they're your, either, they want to call you, or you, you have a call back for this play, it's for this show, and I was like, oh, great. So I went for the call back, you know, sure, I'm sure I'm going to get this job. And I did my reading, and now Clark Johnson was there who directed the, the pilot, and uh, he said, great read, and I said, great. You know, I had fun, and talked for a while and left, and and, and, then, um, and then I kept getting these calls. You're, 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 they really, you know, they, they really think they're going to cast you. They just have to decide who, uh, who the McNulty is. And at that point, it was going to be, I wonder if I can say who it was, John C. Riley. Okay. John C. Riley was supposed to, they were after him to do McNulty. And if it was going to be him, then I was going to be cast. But if it was this other guy they were thinking of named Dominic West, then I was probably going to have to test with him. Well, long story longer, 
I didn't have to test. I never had to go back. I got cast. The role was not even supposed to be a regular, and they up, they upped the role to a series regular uh, before we started, and that was that easiest job I ever got, and, and it just proves, like like as I said, you know, they nobody knew what to do with me or what I was. Well, they didn't know what they were looking. They they knew what they were looking for in that role. They didn't know how to name it, but when I walked in, they were like, oh, that that's what it is right there, and that's how all i think you know most intelligently cast programs work you know they have a sense of an essence of something they maybe can't describe the tangibles or articulate them in a in a way that makes sense to everybody but but when it walks in the room they go you know now for you when you read when you read the pilot start shooting the pilot once again you've been on broadway with two plays that you weren't good as you say so you know you sit there and you know that sometimes even if it's on hbo which is the cool network and they're very cutting edge it might suck. You don't know that. Yeah. Because you don't, as you said, look, Broadway, you were not happy with the plays room, but it's Broadway. So right. you even think it's Broadway. Well, I did know it wasn't going to suck. I know. I mean, I know. it was a good script. Yeah, but I'm just saying it didn't work. I'm just saying, but now when you, when you read, when you shot the pilot, do you say we have some magic here or did you weren't sure to just, did it seem like it was It seemed, right? it's, I, I do remember, uh, and I only remember this because it, you know, it certainly has been discussed in the years since. Um, we did have the sense that it was going to go. We we did have the sense that it was going to get picked up. Um, and but after and after season one, we started uh, when season one finally aired. It was like this is good. This is really good. I mean, it 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 was unlike anything else. The only thing HBO had at the time was uh, Sopranos and Sex in the City, I and mean, that was it pretty much. And Arliss, remember Arliss? I liked Arliss. Right? I loved Arliss. <laughs> I actually had uh, Jim Turner on who played the guy with the glasses on a few weeks ago. Right. And he said when he was an R-list, it was amazing because they would go to a Yankees game and everybody in New York knew Robert Wall. Right. And everyone, everyone would go, you go to a game with them, R-list. And he said it was just this, because <laughs> it was like it had, HBO has those crowds. And yeah. they, the people that watch it are very dedicated. Well, so um, I can't remember what, what, what it was. So uh, after you did the first. Oh, yeah. After the, we did the first season. Uh, it was it was clear that there was it was something was kind of it had something it had that intangible thing I don't even know how to describe and so when it did come back for season two we were very excited and then season two was so different and I know the numbers were never good enough so we kind of never knew if we were coming back quite frankly um, we scraped through to season three which actually was kind of fantastic and well, by then it started to catch. Fire. Season two was bit. the boat. Yeah, the docks. Okay. Okay. Right. Was, and you're right. It was a complete, because I remember I, I, started, right. I binge watched it. You were watching it and you go, wait huh? a second. Wait, on the boats? And yeah. I, I grew up like this. Like, here's a boat cops. What the hell is a boat cop? <laughs> exactly. So, and after season three, which is Hamsterdam, all of that stuff, um, our producer, Robert Colesbury, actually died. Um, and there's a funeral in The Wire, which is actually um. Bob was on the show, had a very small, he, he was a detective, oh, I can't remember the detective's name, anyway. Oh, oh, forgive me, Bob. Um, but because of Bob's passing, there were a number of things, like David didn't know if he wanted to continue, and HBO's support of The Wire at that point was very um, under the radar. Let's just say it was the black sheep of the family. Let's just say that they marketed it to who they thought would be interested and let's just say that the numbers were always very low. And it was only in the later years and then when DVD, the DVDs started being released that uh, The Wire reached a mass audience. And isn't that interesting? I mean, that, and now because of the streaming, oh, I mean, it's... now it's on Amazon. And now, it, it, exponentially, it's growing even more than ever. And, and you know, it was 10, it was I don't even know when it was, 10, 11, 12 well, years yeah. ago? And that's what's amazing is, yeah, I mean, I have a friend, that's, and, and a young guy, this guy, Wesley Parker, he's got to be 24, you know, this, it's his favorite show, and you don't, you know, right. and because then you're it's, thinking, well, it aired when you were like 12 or right. 13, you know, exactly. and, and that's what's amazing now with all these, the streaming is because, you're right, it also gives a chance, because people, not everyone has HBO, right? you know, and, uh, and exactly, I, exactly, yeah, and, and, and you're right, because back when I had HBO, I would watch The Sopranos, but I didn't really watch The Wire, and then. You hear it's one of those things that you hear about it, and everyone—it's such a good show, right? And it got Emmy nominated. 
uh, no, no, never, never a never. One, one Emmy nomination. Never. It's season been, five. It's been called. What was that for? Bachelor? Writing. Oh, so you didn't get to go to the Emmys. Oh, we never got. No, we never got nominated for Emmys. That's the Wire stupid. never was nominated. It got one nominated after the show was over, after it had been, it was done for one episode of writing, and it did not win. It did win a Peabody Award, which is good. <laughs> that's always, you know. Yes, that's impressive. No, it's kind of a joke because, you know, I mean, it, it, it was extremely, it was just racist is what it was. It was freaking racist. That's what it was. You think that's it, why? It absolutely. Cause... Are you kidding? Um, Sex in the City, you know, if it, let me tell you, if it, The Sopranos, it was racist, the fact that that show was nominated, period. Um, if you would like to call in and argue with me, too bad. It's not a call-in show. Yeah. No, but you know, I, I, right? But I, I agree I, with you because you're right. Because also the, the, the people who aren't going to, I mean, you said look at the people they marketed it and to. And look at the people who are voting for the Emmys. Are they going to actually sit down and get down and dirty in the hood with some characters that you actually have to turn on subtitles to understand? I mean, you try understanding Felicia Pierce, Pearson without subtitles. Snoop. Yeah. I don't, even in real life. Right. I need her. She, I, you know, I have a like a subtitle app. I have to <laughs> use when talking to her in person. I think. You know? she, I think she was it's on an crazy. An, she was, she's from Baltimore, right? Yeah. She's yeah. She was. She was on a uh, Anthony Bourdain episode. I oh think he was walking around Baltimore, and she was showing him places to eat. Well, let's go home. So now, did you did, did it shoot in Baltimore? <laughs> yeah, we shot in Baltimore so, so now, entirely. Like, yeah. What was it like? Because Baltimore, I mean, as I say, you know, Baltimore is a rough city. Yes, it, it is. I mean, I, I always laugh because when I used to do comedy, there was a comedy factory outlet in the Inner Harbor. And I used to joke because I grew up in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, but there's a place. Ah, called... Long Beach Island? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I went to Stone Harbor. But uh, I, yeah, I, I, no, Long... I go to Long Beach Island every year. I grew up vacationing there. Okay, LBI. Yeah. yeah and then yeah, there's yeah. a bar called The Catch. That was in Beach Haven. Oh, The, the Catch. The, the... Oh, and Wait. The Acme, which okay. we used to call The Attack Me or The Smack Me. Wait, The Acme, the, the, the supermarket? No, the, the bar. Okay, see, I was more a Stone Harbor guy. Yeah, the catch, I know the catch. The catch, everyone okay. knew the catch. See, then there's the, that's a nice area, Beach Haven. Beach Haven's good. The Holiday Snack Bar was owned by my uh, aunt and uncle. Oh, there you go. Home of the homemade snacks. All oh. the pies and the cakes that were homemade. All homemade. See, that's, that's good. That's right. But the Boathouse. Like, uh, I remember the Boathouse. Yeah, that Boathouse is right around the corner from the right. Acme. See, Ten okay. Cent Beer Nights on Wednesday. Well, that's so uh, funny. There used to be a right. place in Margate called uh, Kelly's. And when my brother went there, it was seven beers for a buck. And then when I was in college, my brother was a few years older, it was five beers for a buck. And by the time I got out of college and went back to visit, beers were a buck. two beers for a buck. And <laughs> I go, because they used to be those little seven ounces. That's right. That's and what it was. Like, and you sit there and you go, you know, who, who had this idea of shore kids? Because that's what we are. We're college kids. And we're down there. And back then, the drinking age was 18. 18 and then I made the grandfather when it was 19. That's right. But you're young kids. You sit there. What are you going to do in the summer? You're going to go. You're going to drink. You're going to try to pick up. You're going to try to hook up. And so let's give them seven beers for a that's buck. That's right. Because that's smart. And, then, and back then, everybody <laughs> drove. So it wasn't like, I used to sit there and my brother would sit there and go, oh, I drove home. I don't even know how I got home. And we'd be I like, know. we don't either. And Where's you, the car? Yeah, I don't look, know. It's out Did front. Did you drive to home? Yeah. I don't yeah. remember. It's out front. Okay, it's safe. <laughs> So, so, so now, what was? How did your career change with how people, you people would recognize you probably from the wire. You know, it's crazy in New York. I get recognized every day to this day, and I have a, I have to confess the one thing I have never done that I need to do just because I need to, I I think is I have ne- I watched the show when it aired originally, like a week apart, a years apart. I have never gone through and watched, uh, you know, binge watched watch the whole show well now you 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 know you with your leg well i could but i find it really hard is it first, hard to watch yourself or just hard well to, first I mean, of all it's like i who knew i was i got gotten so old now oh, come on well but but it is shocking because it's like who is that oh my gosh i, I got i guess time marches on but uh i mean i know i look good now i look great now it's you it's look just, great it's um it's, it's, it's you're younger it's like anything so they go i was younger yeah, yeah. Uh, but um you know what are you? Hey, hey! What are you doing? Uh, I'm watching. I'm watching myself on the wire. You know, I. It's not something that occurs to me. I feel like that. That is, that there are better uses yeah, just, for just, my time. Just say, you know what? I, I found out later in my life I'm a big Stringer Bell people... fan. I'm a big Stringer. That's I like Omar. That's I'm sorry. I sat there and I said. I uh yeah I uh I saw uh I we did an an event, uh last two months ago uh in, no last July July which is what a month and a half ago now. Uh, in Baltimore, uh, was a wire cast reunion for, um, uh, we were going to do it in the Bahamas. Um, and then the Baltimore riots happened. And it, 
it sort of became clear that we should maybe try to go back to Baltimore and do a little something. And uh, and so I wish we would have gone to the Bahamas and then gone to Baltimore do a little something. But and, and it, we just went straight to Baltimore. It. And uh, it uh, you know so Michael Williams was there uh, and uh, Omar and uh, Sonia was there. Uh, Sonia Stone, who played Kima, and lots of other castmates, including myself. And Sonia has founded this organization called Rewired for Change. And we did a benefit, which was um, essentially geared around, oh my gosh, why, why should I have the kid that went viral during the riots for, um, they showed a clip of him on CNN. I can't remember his name now. Google it for me. Anyway, he he was there, and uh, Sonia and uh, Maria Broom, who played Cedric Daniels' wife on the show, um, had been working with these inner-city kids um, on poetry, on uh, theater pieces, and, and monologues to uh, sort of express their frustration with the system, essentially, after, okay. the, after the riots. And so we did a benefit... Um, at the art center there at the Lyric Lyric Opera House uh, for the organization. And it was pretty fantastic. It coincided with um, Arts Fest, which is a huge citywide Baltimore arts festival. Um, and it was pretty successful. I will say what was shocking was we walked in for rehearsal to this 1,200-seat house. And there, you know, there were like, uh, I guess, 15 of us total. Um, not including the kids. And, um, Steve, I kid you not, there were 50 police officers in that waiting room. Waiting. Uh, 50 cops. And the lights came up during the show. It was in the afternoon. And it was very, very well sold. Um, the, the event was very well sold. So it was a good amount of people. Um, at the end of the show, they bring the lights up because we haven't been able to see the audience until now. Lights come up. It is a sea of white people. There is not one black person in the audience. And it was so... It was shocking. It was... And it, it actually turned out to be a, a good thing, but we it was confusing because, I mean, we didn't know what to think. We, right. were, we were doing this benefit for... Primarily, as you know, the black community that had been, you know, really devastated by by this whole Freddie Gray thing and all of it, and the benefit was to give voice to that community, and the white people came and watched, <laughs> and so it was fascinating. And um, uh, you know, uh, HBO Vice was there doing some filming, and I I'm hoping something that Sonya is getting something can happen with that particular piece and following those kids around. Um, and we're hoping to maybe be able to bring it full circle eventually in a year and and perform similar pieces again at some point uh, in Baltimore and have our seat be a little bit more multiracial because it was shocking. That is, that is crazy. Now, now, okay, so going from The Wire to now, it's a great show, now you're going back and forth to stage. I mean, is, is, is it hard to juggle because, I mean, as you say, The Wire was a good level of acting. It's not like you're doing a, a schmaltzy sitcom where you have to do a right, dance, right. you know. And so you, it, it, when you watch it, it's very good. You, you can tell it, and it's well-written, mm -hmm. and a lot of plays are well-written. Was it easy for you to trans go back? I mean, because it has to be a juggle, because even though The Wire, and I always say, you know, The Wire was great, written well, but your scenes are shorter. Then you're going back to the stage where it's like, oh, okay, hey, okay, hey, remember that take one, take two, take three? Uh, you're... you're, you're Four pages of dialogue, uh, four pages, which is a lot for a TV show. Then it's like, okay, now I go, go do an Now go do the to a go. Tony Kushner play yeah. like I did last year at Berkeley Rep. I did a, Tony uh, was rewriting a play and it was four hours long and I was the lead character and I never shut up. And I did it with, uh, it was essentially, it was a 13 member cast. The play is called I Ho for short. For if the whole title is actually the intelligent, the intelligent homosexuals, uh, the intelligent homosexuals' guide to capitalism and socialism with a key to the scriptures is the name of the play, and it was four hours long, and I did that play eight times a week, and 
it, it, it was fantastic. And he rewrote it. It had had a, a previous incarnation in Minnesota and in New York City. And he didn't like the play. So we went to Berkeley and we tore it all apart. And he rewrote it the whole time we were in rehearsal and did that. So that's great. So that's very satisfying and a big flip. Cut to, during Lucky Guy, Lena Dunham came and saw the show. Um, uh, she was very inspired by Nora uh, uh, Ephron. And she wrote this part for me on Girls. Um, I did this episode of Girls where I play her aunt. And it's Amy Morton and Becky Baker and myself have this episode with June Squibb, who plays Flo. It's the grandmother dying, right? And it was this great episode. But let me tell you, I'd been doing Lucky Guy on Broadway for for seven months, uh, six months. I was so big. I had to, it took, it turned, I I had been used to playing, you know, for 1,200 people, and suddenly it was me and Lena in a, in a hospital room, and the director kept going out and going, yeah, um, just can you just, you know, just, just tune it a little bit. Tune it down a little bit. And I was like, yeah, 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 okay. And then we'd do another take. He'd be like, yeah, uh, just, so, you know, you have muscle memory, and it, your muscle memory, you know, comes when it comes and goes when it goes. So it is. It's like, you know what it's like? It's like switching between tennis and racquetball. Okay. You know, racquetball, you use the wrist. Tennis, you, you use the whole arm. And if you switch back and forth, you know, it takes a while to, to remind your wrist that it's either uh, straight or it's flexible. It's the same sort of thing. It's like, you know, you, you have to uh, remind your muscles that uh, the medium has, has, has shifted and pray they come along for the ride. We have a few minutes left. Um, when are you going to get off the crutches? And, and what are you doing to fill your time when you're on the crutches? Besides... I am going to be off of the... Well, I hear that next week I might be able to bear weight, okay. which is very exciting. I got my stitches out a couple weeks ago, and um, I had 24 stitches. And um, I expect to be walking, I think, again by the end of the... I mean, I think I'll be walking, walking, maybe without crutches by November... When, when will you be able to start working again? Um, uh, as soon as someone hires me, yeah. <laughs> I'll get there somehow. <laughs> um, but in my in my spare time, uh, in my spare time, in my enforced sort of resting time, I've been um, I built a new website, www.deardrelovejoy.com. And it is a very nice website. People. Thank I you. I see websites all the time, and there's there's nothing worse that I hate when I go and it's a crappy website. Yeah. And I always look at their how their bio is and this is a good bio because when it's a good bio i can copy and paste and put it right onto my website oh fantastic but sometimes they're like dark on black and you're like i can't copy yeah 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 i have built this with this with a i'll give them a free plug a a thing called banzoogle and i gotta say i am so proud of it i love it and i love it because i know how to use it and you know i put a little blurb about your show on it that was last night took me five minutes you know it's great so I built the website and I'm continuing to add depth to it, but I'm also um, I also need to finish my play, which is about my health issues that I uh, mentioned before. Uh, I did a reading of it at the Chautauqua Theater Institute a couple of years ago, and it was extremely extremely uh, well received. And the place called Bird Elephant China, um, which are uh, has an explanation. But the details will be on the website, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. So the website is the website is deardrelovejoy.com. D-E-I-R. D-R-E. And you tweet. Love Joy. And I tweet and I Instagram and, and I what Periscope are, what are and my Twitter. All of that is on my website, but my but my handles are all uh, universal. It's the letter D, the letter D, Love Joy. So D-D, Love Joy. Well, I want to thank you for and coming on. Thank you, Steve. What a pleasure. I'm, I'm I, I, re- could, I really uh, appreciate it. rearrange your schedule because now she's going to physical therapy. That's mm-hmm. great. We talked to Cooper for an hour. Then we go to physical therapy. That's right. I need to recover. So follow her, people. Also, uh, follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. It's at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. There's over, uh, oh, God, there's 415 episodes yeah, up there. Lot. You can also go iTunes or Stitcher, type in one word, Cooper Talk. Uh, my app is on the Google Play Store. Cooper Talk, it's free. You can get that. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. And don't forget, go to my other website, stopthesalt.com. You know, when I got out of the hospital, I wrote a cookbook. It's 120 episodes, uh, recipes. They're all easy. Very easy to make. They're healthy. They're good for you. It's cooking for one. And what you do is there's not a long list of ingredients. So if you have the basic ingredients at house, you're fine. You don't need cumin. You don't need anything like that. And there's no pictures because we get intimidated when we see pictures in a cookbook. We go, we can't make that. So go to stopthesalt.com, and it's uh, it's 10 bucks with shipping. 
You can buy it at Amazon or Barnes Noble, but buy it from me and I'll sign it and I make more money. I make twice the money if you buy it from me. So don't buy it from Amazon. Buy it from me and I will send it back. So anyway, follow Deirdre Lovejoy. Go follow her at TD. Just check her out. Check her workout. Go to her website. It's really good. And that's about it. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. I will talk to you guys next week.